The following message is from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com. We're going to begin this morning by reading Ecclesiastes 5, verses 1 through 7, which is the passage that we're going to be in this morning. So if you want to begin by opening up your Bibles to that passage, we're going to start by reading there and, uh, and reading what God has to say to us through Ecclesiastes 5. So Ecclesiastes 5, verse 1, begins this way. And guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven, and you are on earth. Therefore... Let your words be few. For a dream comes with much busyness, and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay in paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin. And do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry with your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. Let's pray as we ask God to work in our hearts with this word. God, uh, we come to you knowing that if it weren't for you and your work, Uh, We wouldn't be here in this context being able to hear your word, to be able to trust in it, to be refreshed in it. God, your love and the way that you pursue us, that helps us to be able to read these words and know that you're speaking to us and know that they give life. So I pray this morning as we uh, explore your word and, and see what it is that you'd have for us, you'd refresh us, refresh us in our pursuit of you, to give us just um, just that, that zeal and that warmth that we have known in our, in our communion with you. So bless this time as uh, I'm able to um, read and expound in your word. We pray that your word would be what changes our hearts and works in our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we all know the dangers of what it means to be complacent. Maybe it's complacent in, in your job and in the career that you've cho- chosen and you kind of get into this rut or routine. Or maybe it's from just the everyday interactions with family and being used to uh, the interactions that you have with, with one another. Complacency is something that can kind of set in just in the normal routine of life. Um, you know, with, with parents, maybe it's that uh, opportunity to teach that you pass over for the tried and true, like, do it because I told you so, instead of taking that opportunity to come alongside and teach. Or maybe you work with students or clients that maybe aren't privy to the experience and knowledge that you've had in training for the particular job that you have. And uh, just the complacency of being familiar with the with the concepts and the and the things that you know in your own job or or uh, work that 
you don't come alongside the, them to uh, help them meet where you're at, or um, you, you just get used to that, the routine of things there. Or maybe even more severely, maybe we think of examples like the Titanic. And with the Titanic, there's an opportunity for them to uh, divert from disasters, but the confidence that they had in their own work uh, in the ship that they built led them to be complacent with the warnings and led them right into an iceberg. And we see that there's danger and disaster in complacency. So complacency, carelessness, thoughtlessness, and what we do on a day-to-day day basis um, is part of the human condition. It's part of being human when we get used to doing things day in and day out. And last week, Jacob took us through chapter 4 of Ecclesiastes. And if chapter 4 dealt with the brokenness of our human relationships with one another, chapter 5 starts off, verses 1 through 7 anyway, starts us off by explaining the brokenness of our relationship with God. The worry or the fear that we can grow complacent in who God is and who we have the privilege of being able to speak to and hear from. So the teacher, the one who is kind of narrating and making the observations of Ecclesiastes, really this passage, he breaks down three areas for a careful approach to God is how I'll say that. The main point being that in the routine of life, a careful approach to God must not be lost. I'll say that again. In the routine of life, a careful approach to God must not be lost. These three areas, I'll kind of highlight them at the beginning here, and then I'll go through and and we'll break them down one by one. Uh, So first, in verse 1, you have a careful approach to God and your steps to God. So a careful approach and your steps to God. That's the first one. second one uh, is going to be our careful approach and our words to God. And then thirdly, we'll talk about a careful approach and our promises to God. So these three things, and one thing that I want to underline with all these is they're really analogous um, for our day in, day out, everyday experiences. And, and so we have, um, we, we have this opportunity to connect with people, to have relationships with one another, and that's how communication works, right? We, we listen to what they say, we um, communicate clearly to them, and we're reliable. We keep our word with them. So these things reflect the day-in, day-out relationships that we have and how we communicate with one another. So that being said, we're going to dive in again uh, to point number one here, which is a careful approach and steps to God. And again, that's verse one, and I'll go ahead and read that now. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. And so here you're, we're presented uh, first with this concept of your careful steps to God, like guarding your steps going to God. And in their context, right, to really experience the fullness of God, they, they actually surrounded their lives around the temple or the tabernacle. And there was this pursuit that needed to take place in order to be in the presence of God, where they actually had to physically walk into the, God's temple or into his presence 
In our context, it's a little different. We have the privilege of having God's God's presence with us here and now, and though they did too, we experience it in a more full sense. So what, what does this mean to guard our, guard our steps as we approach God? Well, I think of Psalm 24, uh, verses 3 and 4. Psalm 24, verses 3 and 4 goes like this. It says, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has a clean he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, and does not swear deceitfully. So here we see the, a very similar concept, right? That there's the actual moving towards. So who ascends the hill of the Lord, right? Coming into His presence, who shall stand in His holy holy place? He who has a clean hands and pure heart. So we see that this is somebody who takes that extra step to consider their heart before God. So to put it another way, we think about maybe some examples in our own life, right? There's maybe that time that maybe you're sharp in your words with friends or family or coworkers, right? Maybe you didn't stop to deal with it. Right now, more than any other time in our lives, we're bumping shoulder to shoulder with people and, you know, get very little breaks in between. So naturally, uh, our fuse is going to be a little bit shorter than it would be otherwise. So maybe it's those times that, you know, you find that maybe you made a rude comment or uh, maybe you didn't speak with grace to in response to a family member. Do you take that time to stop to think, where did that come from? Where did that heart attitude originate? What's the solution? Or do I ask forgiveness for this sin for, from my family and from God? Or maybe it's a time that you, you had the opportunity to tell the truth, but you ended up fudging the truth a little bit and not, not giving quite a complete truth because it was easier to lie. And or to put it in a good sense, do we remember that time? Do you remember the time that you had that sweet fellowship with God, that you were able to have that communion with Him, reading from His Word and listening to Him? Maybe you remember that feeling, what that was like. So in the next part of this verse, it says, "Next is better to listen than to provide the sacrifice of fools." Here uh, we're reminded of a story in Luke chapter ten. Luke chapter 10, um, it goes like this. In, in verses 38 through 42, we, we read this ca- uh, portion of Jesus' life. Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving, And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. So maybe we put ourselves in their shoes, in Martha's shoes for a moment. Uh, we have the king of the universe coming over as a dinner guest to our home. 
uh, I hesitate to condemn her actions of wanting to make sure that everything is prepared and everything is perfect and making sure that she's able to be a good host, right? But here we see another side of the story. We see Mary's side. See where Martha saw the opportunity to perform and make sure that everything was ship-shape and exactly, you know, clean and, and sparkling. Uh, Mary saw another picture. She saw another opportunity, that opportunity to sit at the Lord's feet, to hear from himself the words of life, to be imparted truth beyond her understanding. And so we take this moment, like, what does that look like in our lives? And, and that, that, I think of naturally here in the context of a Sunday morning, when we're able to hear God's word, when somebody comes up and, and we le- read larger portions of the scriptures, do we stop to think about what we're experiencing there? Maybe we're like Martha and we're trying to get all the details ready. We're you know, trying to make sure everything is perfect and, and not valuing our heart or thinking about our heart in that moment. Or are we like Mary and think of the opportunity we have to hear the words of life spoken over us? So I think about that on a Sunday morning when we hear from God's word in that way. Um, Then I also think about during the week when we have times to ourselves where we're able to sit and hear God's word by reading it and sitting and enjoying it. Do we have a category in our minds that is that this is God communicating to me? God is speaking directly to me to be changed and to experience hope. That's what it is to stop and to listen. It's better to listen than to provide the sacrifice of fools. So we've seen this first point, right? We've looked at the, the, this communication in the form of listening, right? We've, uh, we've seen it in our careful approach to God and our, and our steps to God. Really, the next part of that is naturally, what about that second layer of communication, speaking to God, right? And that's where point number two here is our careful approach in our words to God. In the careful approach in words to God. Let's read uh, verses two through three. It says, Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven, and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much busyness, and a fool's voice with many words. Now, thoughtful communication can be something that's very difficult to to accomplish sometimes. Uh, I actually think about this past uh, this past week. There was a moment where you know, okay, so I, I kind of think of myself sometimes as this like witty, like joking kind of guy, but really I'm probably just a lame dad, and I just do like really like stupid things. And so I'm walking by Julia, my daughter's high chair, and she's having breakfast. She's eating her yogurt, and I've got you know I just freshly boiled some hot water for my coffee. And I was walking by, and just as a joke, I asked her like, "Hey, Julia, do you want some hot water for your yogurt?" And gonna offer to pour it in. And she wasn't paying attention. She was kind of zoned out and just staring at the wall. And she says, yeah. And I'm standing here with hot water. And I don't know what to do anymore. My joke just fell flat because she wasn't paying attention to what I said. And then all of a sudden it dawned on her what she was saying. And realized it was ridiculous to ask for hot water and her yogurt. 
Um, and so we can have communication like that where maybe we're just not thinking and we're just kind of flippantly giving response to something. Or uh, another illustration that I think of is uh, um, a time that Drew and I were leading discussion with uh, the teens, and we were going through this Bible study process called RANSOM. It's an acronym, R-A-N-S-O-M, uh, this RANSOM Bible study process. And towards the end of the evening, you know, I was mentioning like, hey, you know, we've got, you guys got your notes, you know, feel free to go ahead and take your ransom notes home to your families. And one of the teens stopped me and pointed out that maybe I wanted to reword that and not use ransom notes, you know, to send home to their parents. Um, That's not a great way to start out a youth meeting. And so, so you have... The careful communication can be difficult, right? It can be easy to not think about what you're doing uh, or be flippant with it. And here the teacher shocks us into the reality of that in a unique way by pointing out the vast difference between God and us by God being in heaven and us being on earth. My mind thinks of, and I've thought about this passage a lot in my life at different points, Job 38. I don't have a slide for it because it's a little bit of a longer passage, um, and I felt like maybe it would be helpful. If, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and, and open up to Job 38. Um, jo- Job 38 is uh, an interesting passage, portion of the book of Job. If you're not familiar with the book of Job, um, Job is a story about a man who kind of had it all. He had um, everything that uh, that you could ever ask for, a family, um, a thriving uh, farm in his, his scenario there. Um, he had pretty much everything that you could imagine. But in alternative events that only God knew in this scenario, Job lost all of it, lost everything of his. And over the next couple dozen chapters, we really start to see Job interacting with his friends, trying to figure out why is it that these things happen to him, trying to reconcile how could a good God do this to somebody who was being faithful. And, and we, for, good or, for better or for worse, we see a lot of uh, wisdom being shared there. And finally, after it all, kind of the dust settles, God speaks in chapter 38. And he speaks to Job in a series of um, rhetorical questions. God, in this scenario, he doesn't give Job the reason why all these things happen, as we would naturally expect. Um, He goes into explaining who God is. And in fact, Job in his life never learns why the things happened to him that happened to him. Uh, Job 38, I'll I'll start by reading this. And and let's apply the first point into this uh, second point that we're hearing from God himself here. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? Or what were its bases sunk? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Or who shut the seas with doors? When it burst out from the womb, 
When I made clouds its garment, and thick darkness its swaddling band, and prescribed limits for it, and set bars and doors, and said, Thus far shall you come, and no further, and here shall your proud waves be stayed. And here we hear God really leveling with Job, saying, Were you there? Were you there when I created all of what you see, the world as it is now? And here we get a good idea that God is in heaven and we are on earth. And we have the privilege to visit this gracious God in our prayers, to communicate with him. And it's not to say that we can't bring complaints to God or to, um, to lament as it was prayed earlier. No, this is saying that we um, should recognize who it is that we are praying to. The verse goes on to talk about, um, you know, and let, let your words be few. So in this knowledge of who God is and how high and mighty he is and that he's in heaven and we are on earth, right, to think about that, let your words be few. Now this passage, uh, let your words be few, is not like a word count, right? It's not an essay count or a tweet that you've got a certain character count, you know. Actually, I'm not even sure if t- tweeting has, uh, I call it tweeting, I'm not even sure if that has, like, character counts anymore, so shows what I know. But the concept is the same, right? That there, There's not, like, a limit here that we have to be speaking to God. What he's saying is that we get to enjoy God's presence in prayer, and we should be thoughtful about those words. That we should communicate thoughtfully about it. They shouldn't be flippant and, and just kind of throwing things out there. Um, again, uh, my, my mind goes to Jesus' warning in Matthew chapter 6, verses 7 and 8. And that says, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. So here we're realizing, you know, prayer isn't this some activation switch that, you know, if we, if we do a certain amount of it or we speak to God in a certain way that we're going to get what we want because of the prayer itself. We're not heaping up, you know, this word count prayer just to be heard by God. He's saying, no, God already knows. Meet with him as a father who loves you and wants to provide for you. So maybe uh, as we think about this in our day-to-day life, we think about the fact that um, maybe, maybe your prayer life is kind of like mine. Sometimes it can be lacking in, in, in that passion, in that warmth. Or maybe it's just lacking consistency and it's, you're not, it's, not, it's not something you go to often. And maybe in these situations, what we need is an infusion of the faith that the God that we get to speak to is that God in Job 38 or in Psalm 99, as we heard this morning, that we get to come to this great God. Or maybe, yeah, you just find yourself distracted. You, you find yourself repeating the same words over and over again in your prayer and kind of catching yourself wandering off, right? That These things happen, and maybe we just need to be reminded of that those times in our past when we've had sweet communion with the Lord through prayer, and have enjoyed our pre- his presence in that way. And we've w- left those times full from being with God. A good time to remember those times in your life. 
We realize that prayer is not some kind of activation switch, uh, you know, enacted by our words. Then we'll start realizing that prayer isn't something that God needs from us, but that we need to give to God. The teacher goes on to say to talk about this business of dreams. Uh, it's at the end of that passage, and he, you know, he says, uh, he says here. In verse 3, for a dream comes with much busyness, and a fool's voice with many words. And so here we have this concept that uh, with much busyness comes these dreams, and maybe, you know, maybe you're kind of like me, you have a, a kind of repetitive job or a repetitive part of your life that um, you're doing day in, day out, and then you kind of realize you you dream about it at night, and when you wake up, you're just like maybe not as rested as you would have been otherwise because you're you find yourself dreaming about work, and you're like, wow, I could have been dreaming about a beach in Hawaii, but here I am dreaming about my work. In fact, actually, I started when I, many of you know, I work at a call center, and when I had recently started with them, I found myself uh, at night, like right before I'd fall asleep, I could hear their, uh, the hold music in my head, and it just was awful to experience that. So have mercy on us if you're calling us. We have to listen to that music, too. So here, but the concept is that the fool's words, right, um, that, that the fool continues to speak these words, and you find a fool by his long prayers, that not long because of their length in particular, but long because they're just hapless. They just continue to speak, and they aren't thinking about it. They're rash and not thoughtful about their communication to God. So we've talked about these two forms of communication, coming to God through our careful steps with him, and then uh, being careful with our words to God, right? That communication out and prayer. Now it seems like the teacher kind of takes on an obscure point here, talking about vows, talking about promises to God. And it's kind of out of nowhere, but we'll, um, we're going to deal with this because it was confusing to me. Let's read that now. This is verses 4 through 6. And that's a careful approach and promises to God. Careful approach and promises to God. So read that verses 4 through 6. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay in paying it. For he, who has no, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin. And do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? And again, now dealing with this concept of vows or promises to God, the question is, what does he have in mind? What kind of promises is he talking about here? And uh, if you're going to look into vows in the Christian life, it's kind of hard to find content about it. In fact, if you just Google vows in Christian life, you find a lot of stuff about, you know, till death do us part and things of that nature. So it led me to ask the question, what am I thinking about when I think about vows or promises to God? And for probably worse, I, I think about the concept of maybe making a bargain with God or, you know, a deal with him. Like, hey, God, you know, things have been a little tight financially. Looking to, uh, you know, pad this thing a little bit. You know, maybe if uh, you give me an extra bonus this year or somehow at work or, or something of that nature, maybe I'll serve you a little harder, you know, on the weekends or something of that nature. Or it's like this deal or a bargaining chip with God, right? There's that kind of concept. Uh, or maybe maybe you grew up in more of a traditional setting where you were encouraged to dedicate your life to God. 
that's probably closer to biblical, but uh, often you can consider that in, a, in terms of, you know, you just, this is something you have to do, an obligation, and you kind of throw a stick in the fire to symbolize giving yourself to God just because you have to. And so there's that concept as well of uh, maybe making a vow or a promise to God by giving, him, uh, giving up of your life, right? Uh, and so there's these kind of concepts. We can kind of come up with it in our mind what, what it is that the teacher is referring to here. But I think what he has in mind is what, the, uh, what Moses in the book of Leviticus was describing. In Leviticus chapter 27, chapter 27 is the last chapter in the book of Leviticus, um, we see this concept of vows broken down for us. We see that there's a law about vows. What's interesting about that is that in this, this subject of vows, it falls at the end of the book. And the, if you're familiar with Leviticus in any way, the book of Leviticus is very detailed about this is how things should be, right? We're talking about measurements. We're talking about, you know, how, you know, how to cut things in particular. We're talking about all the rules about the Levite priests and how they should uh, operate, right? It, it, there's a lot of specifics like this is a no, this is no bargain. You got to do this. And then at the end of the book, there's this last chapter kind of tacked on about vows, and the vow in that context was that you were promising to give God something of yourself, of your, of your uh, produce, of, of what God had provided, after you've already given him the tenth that was already required from the law. And so here you have a context for saying, God, or they had a context for saying, God, you've been good to me. You've been abundantly faithful Therefore, I want to give you more than what the tenth was required of me. I want to give more to you. The chapter, tw- chapter 27 of Leviticus is giving opportunity for them to, out of uh, response to God's goodness, to give more. So here, almost in the opposite of my kind of fleshly idea of promising God something, here it was, you know, God has already done something to me and did for me that now I want to give more. That was what... Leviticus 27 dealt with. And we see that a lot in the Psalms. In the, in the Psalms, often you hear about um, that, you know, because, of God, because God's been good to me, therefore I will f- complete my vows. I will give my vows. You see that. Now, in our situation, you know, we don't have Levi priests walking around the Hope Center when we're able to meet there, right? Um, you know, time will tell if they're going to be there when we get back. But, but right now, there's nothing like that going on. So what does a vow look like to us, right? We don't have priests uh, interceding for us with our vows, which, by the way, is probably what the messenger is referring to here. Don't say the messenger was a mistake because the priest was one who uh, dealt with the vows, right? And so don't say the messenger, the priest, that it was a mistake. But we don't have something like that in our context. So what is it referring to? How can we think about vows in our life? And, And thankfully, Jesus actually deals with this in the Sermon on the Mount. In the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5 of Matthew, Jesus spends time talking about the law and how it's more than just, you know, there's a line here and you don't cross it, which is how we often think of laws or rules, right? Like, okay, well, I can get close, but I don't cross it. Jesus goes and intentionally says, no, the problem isn't that, you know, where the line is. The problem is with your heart and that you are, you are breaking this law deeper than you think. For example, he talks about uh, adultery, right? If you even look at a woman with lust, you've already committed adultery in your heart. Or even with uh, the concept of uh, if you're angry with your brother, you've already committed murder in your heart. Uh, 
So we see a couple examples there. Matthew chapter 5, verse 33 through 37 is the same, and that reads this way. Again, you have heard it said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. And so here Jesus expounds on that concept of law, the law of vows and says, this applies more deeply. This applies to even just the consistency of your word um, in general to those around you. Um, Letting your word simply be yes or no without taking it, basically taking it from this formal religious context and contract context and putting it into words of every day. Let your word simply be yes or no. So we see that dives deeper than that in our hearts and our lives. And let's think about it um, in some real life terms because God cares about our word to others. Maybe we think about um, times that we've set expectations with our children and um, we've had to go back and change those expectations for one reason or another. Do you find that 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 happens more often than not where you find that maybe you weren't as faithful to keeping your word with the children in your life that God has given you to care for? Or what about maybe with your spouse? You um, see those shoes, you know, by the door on the floor where, you know, you said you'd put them away and then they're still sitting there, right? Or maybe it's a box in your bedroom that you said you would put down in the basement, but, you know, you haven't gone and done that yet. You're probably thinking, Dave, wow, those are really specific examples. I don't know what you're talking about. Actually, as we say here, and my wife's watching this, she's probably thinking like, oh, that's why he put that down in the basement. But the idea here isn't um, because sometimes life does happen, right? The, you plan to go to the park and all of a sudden a global pandemic breaks out. You can't plan for every contingency, right? Sometimes those things happen. But, but here we're saying, by and large, are you consider, considered a reliable person? Would your friends and family consider somebody that they trust to keep their word, to be faithful to them? Or to even say it another way, we as image bearers of God, ways that we're supposed to show the way that God loves and cares for us, do we show to others the faithfulness and consistency of God meeting and fulfilling his promises to us? Do we show that to others? And are we challenged to be image bearers of God in our promises? So we've spent quite a bit of time here looking at these three areas, right? So careful approach to God in our uh, steps to God and approaching him and hearing from him in a humble manner. We talked about the second one, our careful approach to God in our promise or in our words to God, right? That thoughtful prayer, not, not just the flippant, rash, uh, distracted prayers. And third, we've, thought, we've talked about really the, that careful approach to God and, pro- and promises to him and to those around us. And maybe you're like me, and you've read this passage, and I read it, and as I read it and was preparing for it, I realized, 
we have a lot of negative language in this, right? There's a lot of consequence or judge, judgment type language in this passage. For instance, the, the words uh, sacrifice of fools or they, like they are doing evil. They don't know that they're doing evil. How about uh, God takes no pleasure in fools? Or uh, let, let not your mouth lead you to sin? Or why should, be God, why should God be angry and destroy your, the work of your hands? And you read through this, and, and maybe your heart does the same thing that mine does when I read this or I read the book of Proverbs, where I get this an un, unavoidable reality that I'm more like the fool than the wise. I have let the routines of life get involved with um, my, my devotion to God and, and my time with him and his word, right? I come to him distracted. I, I don't pray to him as thoughtfully and carefully in recognition of who he is. Maybe you're like me and you read this and you think, what if I align myself more with the fool than with the wise? So I hope that Hebrews chapter 4 would speak some hope into our lives. Uh, Hebrews chapter 4, I'll read verses 14 and 15 here. It says this, it says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So we read this passage and we recognize there was one who did go before God and guarded his steps perfectly. There is one who sat and listened and obeyed perfectly the will of his father and, the wor- and, uh, and heeded his words. There is one who made his promises to us and to God himself and was faithful in his, entirety, in his entire life. He was faithful on every point. There was one who went before God and did all of what we could not do. And that same one became the fool that this passage talks about. So that instead of God looking at us as fools, he looked at him as, fool, as a fool. There was one who took the anger of God, that our, our sin, the sin of our lips, led to the anger of God, and that God, instead of, and that wrath and that anger, instead of being poured out on us, was poured out on him, Jesus Christ. He, went, he went, was the great high priest here who passed through the heavens. Think about how perfectly your steps had to be guarded to be able to pass through the heavens. He is the one who went and took our punishment. And why? Why did he do it? Hebrews 4, verse 16. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. He did it all so that we could approach God with confidence. Think about that word, confidence. The only way we can approach God with confidence, the God that we read about from Job 38 or that we heard about from Psalm 99 this morning, the only way we could approach that God with confidence is if somebody's, uh, somebody else's record was looked at instead of mine. 
as if God looked at me and saw that I was never distracted in my time hearing from his word, as if I had never given in and not, given a, and not fulfilled a vow or a promise, that I've prayed perfectly to him in every point. It's the only way that we can experience confidence and receive that grace is knowing somebody went before us. Now, the teacher summarizes in verse 7. <clears throat> for, when dreams de- for when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. And here we see the concept of the fear, of fearing God. Not to spoil the ending of the book, but it does mimic the end of Ecclesiastes, where we're going, which the summary of which is to fear God and keep his commandments. It's interesting, we're about halfway through the book, and here he reminds us of this fear. It's almost a little pointing forward to fear God as the solution to these things and the answer to Hevel. And so we must fear God, and we've looked at who that God is, and we've looked at how he has been gracious to us. And so again, in summary, as we consider these three things, we're careful in our steps to God because God truly is worthy of a faithful pursuit of him and hearing from his God, or hearing from his word. Number two, are we careful in our steps to God? Are we are we careful? Are we careful in our um, our promises to God as well? And the third point: Are we careful in our uh, faithful prayers to God? Because we do have a God, a gracious God, who's worthy of a careful approach. Thank you for listening to this message from Kings Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. Please feel free to share or distribute this content, but do not charge for it or alter the content in any way without permission. King's Cross Church exists to treasure, proclaim, and grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about King's Cross Church, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com.